Today's scripture reading is Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity <coughs> of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, so glad to be with you this morning, and I wanted to uh, just minorly correct one thing that Paul said uh, from the announcement time earlier. Guys' night, it will be next Monday night, so not next Sunday night, but the following, not tomorrow night, but a week from tomorrow night, we'll have guys' night. This will be our second time to do this. Uh, I'm going to be speaking uh, to the guys, and it's in many ways a continuation of what we're talking about today, about the good life and enjoying God, specifically as men. And so I'd love to invite the guys in the room to that. We're going to have some time of discussion here, and then we will head elsewhere for some refreshments. It's simply like that. We're in uh, a series on the Psalms of Ascent, so the Psalms of Ascent. These are the Psalms that Israel would sing, presumably when they were traveling up to Mount Zion to worship one, two, or three times a year. As God's people, they become uh, this, this little hymn book within the hymn book for not only a life of worship, but a life of ascent towards God, which is what we're told in the New Testament that we, are, um, we live with Christ in the heavenly places. We are ascending to, to New Jerusalem. That, um, that we are to focus on the things that are above, not the things that are below, that we travel with Christ in His ascension uh, over all things. His glorification to the right hand of the Father is our pathway because we're in Christ where He has gone before His death, then His resurrection, His ascension is our life. And in many ways, it's why we named our church Ascension Church of Phoenix, this upward life of God doesn't mean that God physically is up there and that we um, are morally, you know, getting better and better. That's not the picture. The picture is of being in Christ who has gone before us. And so we look at these Psalms as pictures of what a life in God looks like. And Psalm 128 is going to give us a picture of the good life. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help this morning. Before we dive in, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that all of our life is lived in you. In you, we live, move, have our being. You're not far from any one of us. So I pray that we would reach out and see and experience your closeness this morning, that we would see that it is your intention, desire, and promise to bless your people in this life and in the next. 
And we pray that the name of Jesus will be honored and magnified by our time and our words and the meditations of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, many of you know I grew up in, in Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, and then I went to college in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. There's a longer story there, um, but I did not, before the age of 18, really know where Nebraska was on a map. Um, it was one of those boxy states in the middle, uh, of which I had no idea. Um, but when I drove to Nebraska, I I uh, realized for the first time the state motto of Nebraska is the good life, also uh, home of Arbor Day, but that's another motto. Um, state slogans are weird, right? Every state has like three or four slogans, but one of the slogans of Nebraska is the good life. And So literally the first time that I drove into the state of Nebraska, I was greeted with a massive sign that said, welcome to the good life. Welcome to the good life. That's a bold sign. It's bold because it kind of implies that where you've been before is not as good. And that's probably true if you're driving in from Iowa or <laughs> South Dakota, right? Welcome to the good life, right? It's bold. It's also bold, not just because of what it says negatively about everywhere else, but it's also bold to say, this is it. This is where the good life is. It's, it's found right here in Nebraska. Now, that is a debatable proposition, that Nebraska is the good life. I had a great experience there. I loved going to college in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a good life. College generally tends to be a better life than high school and a better life than the real life anyway, but it was a good experience. Also, Lincoln, Nebraska consistently ranks as one of the best places to live in the United States. That's true as well. There's relatively low cost of living. There's lots of amenities. Um, there's a, it's a college town. It's kind of in between a small town and a big town. There's a lot of things that it has going for itself. But some would argue that you can't have the good life and sub-zero temperatures. Maybe some in this room would argue such a thing. Can you have the good life without mountains? Because there are not any in Nebraska. The prairie has its own beauty, but surely it's not everything. Now, we have the kids in the room uh, with us. You guys, kids in here, you guys like Chick-fil-A? Yeah? Get a few nods there. I like Chick-fil-A. When I was in college in Nebraska, there was no Chick-fil-A in the town. No Chick-fil-A in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm sure there, are, there is now. Can you have the good life without Chick-fil-A? Is that possible? You see that it's a debatable thing. What is the good life? How do you define it? And really, is it a function of what's happening around you? Chick-fil-A, mountains, good weather, whatever it is. Is it circumstantial? Is the good life things that are around you, or is the good life something that's happening in you, the sense of peace, the sense of contentment that we all long for? Is it a little bit of both? Well, Psalm 128 tells us about the good life. It's really what the psalm was about. There are four different words used to talk about blessing and goodness in this psalm. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, verse 1. 
The end of verse 2, you shall be blessed. That's the same word as in verse 1. Blessed, you shall be blessed. Then it says in verse 4, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Actually, that's a different word for blessing there. A different, slightly different nuance of meaning. Prosperity. May you see, verse 5, the prosperity of Jerusalem. That's a different word as well. And then finally, the psalm ends, peace be upon Israel. You may know that Hebrew word, shalom. It's different than the other words used in the psalm, even though oftentimes the word for prosperity is the word for peace. Here it's not. There are four different ways. The psalmist in just a few verses says, do you want peace? Do you want blessing? Do you want prosperity? Do you want However, I can describe it to you, the good life, this is where it's found. Now, what if our life doesn't feel good or isn't good? Maybe our life doesn't seem good, or at least not in the ways that we would want it to be. Maybe there's some circumstances in your life that are not good. This is going to be the tension that we play with this morning. When we talk about blessing, there's always the question about what about the absence of blessing? What about if I'm not experiencing blessing? And if that's where you are, Psalm 128 can be a bitter pill to swallow even though it is a peppy, upbeat song because it doesn't really mention the shadow side or the downside of the not good life. How are we to understand that? Well, as I've mentioned before, the Psalms of Ascent have a pattern, an internal pattern. It's quite remarkable. When you look at the, the 15 Psalms that we're looking at, they go in a pattern of three. The first is a Psalm of distress. The second is a Psalm of help. And the third is a Psalm of arrival. And this becomes the pattern and it's like the pattern of life. It's the narrative of our lives to experience distress and then pray to God for help, see in some, uh, some ways His help, that He helps Israel, He helps His people, and then arrive. They're, they're on a journey. They're going to arrive at Jerusalem, but we know that, that that's just one of the patterns because one of the stories of our lives is to experience that. And sometimes we do experience arrival. We experience arriving where we long to be. But then it, in some ways, it just highlights the lack of other things that we don't have. And then we're led back into distress. Do you see how the pattern of the psalm then becomes the pattern of our lives? This, Psalm 128, is a psalm of arrival. It does not only speak about the blessing, to exclude the sense of non-blessing, but rather to show us that this is where everything is headed. So we have a tension to walk through. We have a tension of kind of past, present, and future, a kind of, is this what I'm experiencing now? This is what I long for. And then also, this is what God will do. Here's the main point this morning. In time, God will restore the good life to everyone who follows Him. It's not a matter of, it's not an open question, a matter of debate. God does, 
promise prosperity and blessing to Israel. The question is when. That's the question. Not if, but when. And so I want to look at this psalm through three angles. First, the life we pray for. Second, the life we have. And then third, the life to come. The life we pray for, the life we have, and the life to come. This gets at this tension of distress and arrival within the Psalms themselves. First, the life we pray for. This is the picture that the Psalm gives us of a beautiful life, what God calls good. And typically, the things that God calls good are the things that bring blessing and joy to us. And again, I want to acknowledge that as I go through this, I'm presenting the ideal, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm not ignoring the distress or the life circumstances of anyone who does not have the things that we're talking about. I recognize the pain. Hold on. We're going to get there. But we need to see the picture of blessedness from Psalm 128. It's really four things that kind of come into alignment for this blessed life. It's your labor your family, your place, and your longevity. These are the things that make up the good life. It begins with labor in verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Ideally, in the life that we pray for, We labor well. That's part of what blessedness and good life is. What specifically are we praying for? We're praying that our enjoyment of our work and the the work itself or the fruit of of the labor and the labor itself would be tied together. That's what he says here. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. That there's a connection between the work that I do and the results that I see in the world. Isn't that beautiful when that happens? When you say, I'm good at this. Here's the problem. I solved the problem. People were blessed. I ate well that night because I worked hard. That would be the ideal. That's the life that we pray for. Now, we've lost this connection between our work and our results. It's not easy sometimes, especially in our modern life and in our separation from the means of labor that is uh, like the farming um, communities that everyone was a part of in this context, that we've lost some of that in our um, mechanized world, in our thinking world that much of our jobs have to do with intellectual connections or human connections rather than the results of the labor itself. But the ideal would be that we see the fruit of our labor. And so the blessed life includes industry, productivity, meaningful contribution, your labor. Secondly, your family. The psalm spends significant amount of time with this picture of the domestic life that God calls beautiful. 
What is this like? Well, the husband, the wife, and the children are all connected and at home, and the central pictures here are a well-ordered home and a central table. A well-ordered home and a central table. A table, that is, the hospitality or the the food or the, the experience of being together as a family is central. Each person in this description is fruitful. So the husband is the one who uh, works hard, the fruit of the labor of your hands in verse 2. Then it switches to the wife. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. This refers to her productivity, also her beauty, perhaps also her fertility. Children are like these olive shoots around your table. They're fresh They're full of life. The little olive shoots are the future, right? These future olive trees that are going to produce valuable commerce for Israel. Olives were the staple of a diet of the oil that they used. They were their economy. Children then would be a fruitful picture of this family. Now, it can be very hard to translate this. After all, this was a context where everyone worked from home. Husbands, wives, And children would all find their home and the farm and the table and men and women and children all connected. And so there is a challenge here, I think, for families. If you want to fight some of that separation, you should by placing the home and the table as much as you can in the center of your life and you will find more blessing. This is the life we pray for. It's not an exaggeration to say that one of the things that our modern times, our nation is suffering from is that we don't live the good life because we have in many ways destroyed and ignored the family. But the family is the most basic form of human life, the most basic polis, city, structural, government, This is what Martin Luther says, for of houses or families are made cities, of cities, provinces, of provinces, kingdoms, household government then, with reason called the fountain of policy and political government, is with reason called the fountain of policy and political government, for if you destroy the one, the other cannot exist. The family is at the center of all structure of human development, Luther says. Now, I know when I mentioned work, some of you were like, ah, I don't have a good job. I don't, the labor that you describe is not what my work is. And I know when, some, when I mentioned family, you're like, that's not the family either I came from or that I have now or both. Stay with me. The good life also includes a sense of your place. This is that blessing that comes from the city of Zion. Verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. This is the place where God called his people. However you want to define this place, this was their city. This was their nation. This was their, their people. Even when Israel was in exile in Babylon, when God called them away for 70 years, you'll remember in Jeremiah 29 what he calls them to do. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to be a part of the city. I want you to get married and have children. I want you to 
to, to realize that this place, even though it's not your place, is the place where God calls you. And in seeking its welfare, in seeking its blessing and peace, you will find your own welfare. And so place matters to blessing. Place matters to blessing. Your city, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your friendships, being a citizen of Arizona, being a citizen of the United States, living where you are and seeking the place's prosperity is part of the good life. The last part of the good life that we pray for is your longevity. Verse 6, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the prayer for a long life that you would see Not that you would have children's children. It's not a picture just of the generations, but that you would see your children's children. Long life in Scripture is consistently called a blessing. Sometimes I hear Christians say things like this, I can't wait to die so I can go to heaven. Now, there's a part of that that's true. There's a part of that that's the call of the New Testament. Come quickly, Lord, Maranatha. Come and restore things, that longing. But there's something off about that statement too. Because life is good. And eternal life is an extension of life here. Life is good no matter where it's found. The fifth commandment, obey your father and mother why? So that you would have a long life, long in the days, in the place where the Lord your God calls you in this land. Read the book of Proverbs. Read many things in Scripture about the blessing of a long life. And this is tied to righteousness, and it's called a blessing. It's something, it's part of the life we pray for. We pray that our labor would be fruitful, tied to our desires. We pray that our family would be this blessed arena of productivity and joy and beauty. We pray that our place would be a place that we're connected to and that, we're, that is prospering, and we pray that we would have long life. Some of the godliest people I know are Ken and Carol Trevilla. They live in Chandler here, and they've been a blessing to our family. Ken, the husband, just turned 90 a couple of months ago. He prays for me every day. They still host people in their house. They still meet with people constantly. They're a ministry couple. When we were in the hospital a few months ago with one of our sons, they came and visited us in the hospital. Ken takes out the trash for his elderly neighbor. He's 90. I don't know how old his neighbor is, but this is a picture of the most righteous people I know, and God has blessed them with long life. Again, it's the life that we pray for. Psalm 128 is a prayer. All these are prayers. It's, a, it's may this be true. I want this arrival of having a, a blessed life. That's the life that we pray for. But secondly, we need to see the life we have. The life we have. This is a psalm of arrival, but we have not arrived, and no one has. I was thinking about this passage and holding it up next to a historical figure 
this week. Corey Tenboom from The Hiding Place, a book everyone should read every five years. It's amazing. She's a survivor of a concentration camp. If you know the story, she was this Dutch Christian. Her family hid Jews during the, when the Nazis occupied uh, Holland, and, and they hid Jews in their house, and then they were arrested and taken to a concentration camp, and she was stripped of everything, her clothing, her dignity, her family, her life as she knew it, the devotional life of her family, which is so rich and beautiful. How does Psalm 128 fit in with Corrie ten Boom's life? Her labor was forced labor. She was forced to work for the benefit of the Nazis on pain of death. Her family, well, her family of origin largely didn't survive the war for various reasons, for persecution or old age. And she missed some of the deaths of her family. What about her own family? Well, she herself never married. So she didn't have any children. How does this fit in with the picture of the home and the table given to us in Psalm 128? She did have one thing. She lived a long time. After she survived, God blessed her with a life till 91 years old. And so by many measures, she didn't have the Psalm 128 good life, at least not for long seasons of her, of her life, but in other ways, she did. This is important, to look at the life that you have. And the truth is that none of us, none of us, are playing with the full deck. Even if we are blessed in some of these ways, maybe even significantly blessed, there are other ways in which we are not. And this is so important for us to see because it's the easiest thing in the world to look at someone else and to envy their life. If I had the job that they had, if I had made the money that they had, if I had children like that, I always wanted children, I didn't have them. If I could have a family like theirs, if I could have just this, this house, or if I could live in that neighborhood where that, that person lives, that would be the best neighborhood to be in. We envy place. It's the easiest thing in the world, but the truth is you don't know what it's like to be anyone else. And none of us have the full deck. None of us have the life of arrival. All of us, no matter what it looks like on the outside, significantly lack blessing in some kind of way. So, how is it that Corey Ten Boom and anyone else who lacks the full deck, maybe even is in a place of great misery, can be blessed? Well, it's the way the psalm begins and then closes off a section in verse 4 by talking about the fear of the Lord as being the source of blessing. We skipped over verse 1, but let's return to it. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. 
who walks in his ways. Verse 4, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That is a section beginning and ending, and in between is the things about the family. How can you have a life of blessing without circumstantial blessings? It's by having something that no circumstance could take away. Nothing can take away from you your fear of the Lord and your commitment to obeying Him with your life. And that is the first and foremost place of blessing. Blessed is everyone happy. That's the same word as the beginning of the psalm. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in these ways but walks with the Lord. Here it is again. Blessed, happy is this one who fears the Lord. You may not have the circumstances of blessing, but you can still have a good life because you can have a life of godliness. And the blessed life, the good life, ultimately flows from godliness, from fearing the Lord. Enjoying your job is wonderful, a great gift. Having a beautiful family is an enviable and beautiful thing. Loving where you live, living a long time, all good. But all of those blessings can be stripped away and you can have a good life. And in some cases, they certainly will be stripped away. Because what can't be stripped away is your life with God. And that's where blessedness comes from. It's from walking with Him. We're reading uh, as a family right now, and our, we read at night to our kids, and the book that we're reading right now is The Little Pilgrim's Progress. You know the famous story of Pilgrim's Progress? It's the allegory of the Christian life. And Christian walks through life from the city of destruction where he finds himself, uh, this is the life that he has, all the way to the life that is to come, the celestial city, and it's about his journey. It's an allegory. Little Pilgrim's Progress does the same thing, except just with little cute field animals um, as the characters. And so we're reading that right now, and Christian is walking through his life, and we're near the end. And basically, the plot of the book is this. It's so simple. There's a road. There's a path, a walkway. It's the king's highway. It's the king's way. And, And every single little chapter in the book is about whether they stay on the path or not. That's it. They meet somebody. They tempt them off the path. Maybe the grass looks a little better over here, so they start walking on that grass, but it's not the king's way. Every single chapter is the same thing. Whether they're going to follow the way of the wicked prince, they're going to go off the path, or whether they're going to believe that the good prince can protect them, care for them. The instructions are simple. All they have to do is stay on the path, even when it's uncomfortable and scary. And so after a while, when you read a hundred of these chapters, you're like, okay, I get it. Just stay on the path. And it becomes so obvious, like, don't, don't fall for that again. Don't believe that the other path is better. But what you see so obviously condensed in a story that you can read with a, a few hundred pages um, and, and is a picture of of a whole life, right? It helps because what's true of that is also true of our life. It's so obvious. And yet, it's still difficult in the moment. What's obvious? 
that we will be more blessed if we follow God's way. And that the way outside of God is a lack of blessing. But consistently, because we have time and space and distractions and temptations, we begin to believe that a way outside of God is more desirable than to follow Him. And really, psalms like this call us back and return us to the simple wisdom. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in His ways. What path lies before you? Where is your obedience being tested? Where are you tempted to see like, this would be better if my life was like this, but God says no. Then don't choose that path. It's not a pathway of blessing. How are we to stay on this path? God himself keeps us on this path. He invites us into this life through fear of him, through trembling, through repentance. We come onto this path that is God's way by admitting that we are sinners and that we have not chosen the right way for ourselves. We go through the gate like little Christian does in the story. We release our burden of sin, and then the whole game is staying on the path of blessing, the path of life. And how God keeps us on that path is by placing us in His Son, His Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the way that we stay on the path. We place ourselves in Him. He guards and keeps us until the end where God blesses us forever. And so he wants us to have life now. He wants us to find the good things now. With those hints, those blessings, those foretastes of the coming kingdom. But no matter where we are, the life that we have can be a life in his name. Blessed by him because we fear God and we come to Christ. Briefly as we close Let's look at the life to come. This is a psalm of arrival. Not the life that is, but the life that certainly will be. In time, God will restore good life, the good life to everyone who follows him. This is his promise. What does that look like? It looks like peace. The last words of the psalm, peace be upon Israel. There's another psalm that ends in the same way. It's actually three chapters before, Psalm 125. The last psalm of arrival. Peace be upon Israel. Shalom. A word that means much more than our sense of a ceasefire or peace between nations, but means a completeness, a wholeness, a right relationship. All of the things that the circumstantial things that we talked about are hinting at. What, why is marriage good or a family good? Because we are part of the household of God. Because we are married to God. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Why is the place 
where God puts us good. It's because we're in His world and, and when we're fully and finally restored, we'll be with Him forever. Why is our labor good? Because He made us to work and keep the place that He called good. This all ties back to what God desires for us, of which our circumstances are only pictures. And in the new heavens and the new earth, remain that way. They're dissolved. We're the bride of Christ. We're not married. We are workers in the kingdom of God, not trying to one-up one another. All of the pictures of circumstantial blessing are then given to us in one great arrival. So Psalm 128 pictures for us what can be a sense of blessing now, but also what will certainly be a sense of blessing to come. So what do we do with these tensions between what is, what we want, and what will be? Well, first we give thanks for the good life that we have. Christianity is not about avoiding good things. I'm guessing, I know, that God doesn't, has not given you a full deck, but he has given you something. Maybe even several things. Maybe many things. We are not all equally blessed in this life, on this side. So whatever he has given you, give thanks for it. For your family, if you are close, for your work, if it is good. For your place, if it is one where you feel connected and loved and known. For your long life, if God has given it to you. Give thanks for what he has given you. Pray for what you don't have. It's okay to do that. It's more than okay to do that. You don't need permission from me to ask God for good things. He's already told us what is good. These pictures of goodness that we have in this psalm are things to pray for, to work towards. You want your life to look like this. You want your work to be aligned. You want your family to be a place of blessing and your home and table to be central. These are all good things. So give thanks for what you have. Pray for what you don't have. And third, live for the good life to come. Live for the good life to come. Even though we give thanks and we pray, we don't live for circumstantial blessings. We live for this future picture of God's goodness to us, where he shares in his own life with us, where we fully are with him and share in his life forever. Out of the abundance of who he is and what he has given, we experience in the life to come. One day, Everyone who follows God will be fully blessed, fully given what our hearts long for, not in pictures, but in reality, not in shadows, but in the substance. And that's something that we look forward to, that we fix our eyes on, that we live for now. Let's pray.